Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up on the program today, we will have the very latest for you on flooding in this province as well as roads reopening. That is scheduled to get underway in about 10 minutes and we will take you there live just as soon as provincial officials start speaking about that. Right now though, talking about something that has been proposed at Vancouver City Council. I'm proud to announce that we're on pace to approve nearly 100,000 homes over a 10-year period. That far and exceeds our targets. Moving to walkable, transit-oriented communities is big move number one in our climate emergency action plan. That is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. He was speaking just a couple of days ago about his State of the City address, but specifically talking about climate action. And the mayor is also announcing that he's going to introduce what in a news release is called a progressive climate emergency action levy as part of the 2022 municipal budget. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit more about that. So joining us is Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, Councillor Kirby Young, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Good, thank you. What do we know about this levy? What is being proposed or brought to council? Well, it's a great question because uh, this is what I'm calling a budget bomb drop because the mayor doesn't share or discuss his plans with council and he hasn't shared the details with the public either, uh, which I think is a challenge when you're trying to build support um, behind really smart climate policy. All he's suggesting is what I think is going to come down as essentially calling it a levy uh, because he made a commitment to not increase property taxes by more than 5%. And I think what we're going to see is a proposal for an additional 1% levy um, on council budget's decision day. Uh, The news release that went out says that the levy, if adopted by City Council, would establish a permanent and stable annual fund for Vancouver's Climate Emergency Action Plan, raising over $100 million over the next decade to fight climate change. So other than that, and and your uh, suspicion that it's going to be a 1% tax, do we know much else? Well, I think that's the problem, Jill. We don't, and we don't know what the plan is. And that's what people want to see is what is it going to be spent on and what are the outcomes and the results going to be? Um, City of Vancouver has been very effective in areas that we have really direct control over um, in things like strengthening our green building policy, increasing electric vehicle uh, requirements in commercial buildings, um, approving more dense housing forms, um, advocating for rapid transit, things that are really going to make a difference in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And all I hear here um, is raising funds, but without um, really providing the public with information about what it will be spent on and how it will positively impact climate. Uh, you raise uh, an interesting point, or when you say what the city has uh, kind of jurisdiction over, what it, what is within the grasp of what a city council can do. Uh, it made me think of a time ago, and I don't think these signs are still there, but there were signs on parts of the seawall in Vancouver that said, in 30 years, you might be standing in False Creek if you were where the sign was, and the sign obviously was on in the ground. Uh, is the city doing anything about that? I mean, we looked at the Fraser Valley, we look at the devastating flooding in the Fraser Valley, is the city or do you think is it in the, under the jurisdiction of the city to be looking at that and, and doing actual things that will deal with what seems to be inevitable as we move forward? Yeah, absolutely. The city has identified sea level rise as a real threat for a number of years. And so we have a planning process underway for the West End for renewal of the waterfront area along there. Um, and in addition, when we have private projects coming forward that are close to water, 
there are additional setbacks that are required in climate mitigation in order to ensure that new developments are resilient to sea level rise. Do you think the city is doing enough? Because we've talked also about, say, the the redevelopment of the south side of False Creek. Is that taking into account that even if the city becomes the greenest city with the lowest emissions on the planet, they're still going to have to deal with the fallout of climate change, whether it's caused by people in Vancouver or people elsewhere in the world? I think that one of the areas that has really been neglected is in core services. And so think about sewer infrastructure and renewal in terms of sewer separation. And we are behind pace in renewing our aging infrastructure. So imagine if our sewers are not uh, resilient enough, what it would be like if we experience any of the impacts of the flooding that we have seen um, for our neighbours. It has devastated the communities um, in southwestern B.C. Um, And so I think, you know, we really need to remember, too, that core services are climate services, and that that includes shoring up our key infrastructure like sewers. Uh, Do you think that it will be a wake-up call then, as far as you make uh, the point, look at Merritt. Merritt's sewers, over they stopped working. The entire city had to be evacuated. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would look like on a scale of imagine if a city of Vancouver found themselves in that same position. Yeah, I, I think I really do hope it's a wake-up call. I've been advocating for sewer renewal since early in this council, and um, we've heard some things put forward, like Vancouver only had more curb cuts and you know um, on sidewalks, that that should be one of the um, outputs that this money should go towards. But arguably, the city should be doing curb cuts anyway, and I think it's really more significant regional efforts, such as providing people with better transit alternatives and other ways to get out of their car, building more complete communities so they do not have to travel as far. Um, by having things like neighborhood grocery stores. That's where the city can make, I think, the, the most significant differences. All right. Well, we will be watching the debate and seeing the conversation on this when it comes to council. Councillor Kirby Young, thanks so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jill. Well, yesterday on the program, we started the show with the government announcement that five paid sick days is what is being legislated here in this province that will start up January 1st. A lot of reaction to that. And joining me now with more is Gavin McGarrigal, who is the Western Regional Director with Unifor. Gavin, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, hi, Jill. What are your thoughts, your response to that announcement? Well, I think uh, there's a lot of workers who are going to be disappointed. I mean, we talk about this announcement uh, affecting a million workers. The reality is 81% of workers in the government's own survey wanted to see 10 days, um, and they didn't get it. And it wasn't just our union. It was the entire labor movement. It was every uh, organization that speaks for working people was also coming at 10. And the real disappointment is, of course, we're on the cusp right now of seeing 10 paid sick days brought in federally, Uh, We think they'll be in before Christmas. And so you're going to have two tiers of workers here in British Columbia, those that have 10 paid sick days and those that have five. So it's a it's a pretty sad day when an NDP labor minister shows up at a press conference uh, to talk about a program designed to help workers and is instead uh, joined by no worker reps and employer reps who are chiding workers to be happy with their half a loaf. uh, Again, while while they're looking at uh, the federal government bringing in 10 days. What about businesses that said that this is kind of a happy medium, that yes, it's going to be an added cost, but it makes sense, we don't want people coming to work sick, and that this was some some common ground to find there? Well, it's interesting to note that the 10-day option, again, in the government's own survey, uh, showed that 19% of employers were prepared to support uh, the uh, the 10-day standard. There's also been studies uh, that have done that shows that when you take everything into consideration, uh, this would increase overall business costs by only one-fifth of one percent. 
Uh, and that's simple because, all, you know, again, in the government's own numbers, only about 70% of workers indicated they used up the full allotment of sick time. So this is, you know, good for workers, good for the communities, good for businesses. And unfortunately, on this issue, the NDP decided to listen to the voice of businesses instead of the voices of working people. If you talk about that 19% of employers, though, that, that say they would have been in favour or are in favour of 10 days, I mean, nothing is stopping them from going ahead and bringing in their own sick day program, is it? Well, the reason we have employment standards is that level playing field. If everyone is competing on the same playing field where everyone has to offer that, then it, it gets uh, worked out over time. You know, I've said uh, and been involved with uh, some of the money that's been sent out to businesses over the past two years. Uh, the Tourism Task Force, for instance, I was on, over $100 million uh, are going out the door to support uh, businesses. And that's all well and good. But ultimately, if there was a bridge that needed to be done, the government could have stepped forward with this. You know, their own program that they brought in uh, this summer only cost them $15 million. Uh, for the three days, it was undersubscribed. Uh, workers, again, were not using all of it. And so if they were really that concerned about bridging that gap, uh, they could have stepped in with some funding. But instead, they uh, they just chose the, uh, the route of least resistance and, and brought it in. It's certainly good to see some paid sick days coming in for working people. Of course, they'll take uh, whatever they can get. But uh, again, it's going to be pretty hard to explain. Uh, why there's two tiers of workers in BC and why uh, the federal government uh, has uh, has 10 days uh, full workers in British Columbia who are federally regulated, whereas the provincial government, knowing what it cited in the press conference yesterday, that this is the most uh, precarious workers, uh, women, workers of colour, part-time workers who are most impacted, they're the ones that are going to be having to go back to work uh, before they fully recovered, and that's just going to continue the cycle, again, uh, costing businesses more. During the pandemic, we saw dozens of businesses closed for two weeks or more because of outbreaks. And so this is, um, this is not going to get the job done. Uh, do you think, though, when you mentioned, too, that, that not everybody used the three days that were brought in, that uh, we don't see everybody using the 10 days, does that show that, that we don't need the 10 days if people aren't using them anyway? Well, again, it's just like many employers. You have these policies in place to support your, your workforce so that when they do need them, they're there. And most people, you know, aren't into gaming the system. We see that uh, across all of the workplaces that, that we deal with. People trust uh, that their employer is going to treat them fairly. So this is something, though, that we all know COVID. We've heard it for the last two years. If you're sick, isolate for 10 days. We've all had uh, even just a heavy flu that can easily put you back for two weeks. And, of course, this assumes that workers are only going to be uh, sick, uh, you know, uh, for a few days at a time. I heard the Labour Minister yesterday trying to explain that, you know, maybe a worker could get sick on a Friday and, and recover over the weekend. I mean, that's just not how it happens. People get sick. They need to take the time off. They need to stay home. And, and they can't wait uh, to find out uh, whether or not they're going to get paid. All right. Uh, Gavin McGarrigal, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks again, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Well, as you know, it is Thanksgiving in the United States, and I've been seeing footage and pictures of the Macy's Parade, a lot of floats in a few. Well, a bit later on this half hour, we're going to check in with Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong. He has been assigned to spend the day in Whistler, so we'll see how things are going up there. Right now, though, want to talk to Len Saunders, who is a Blaine immigration lawyer. Len, thanks so much for joining us on what is technically a holiday for you absolutely so even though i'm a canadian i'm living in the u.s so i get kind of both thanksgiving <laughs> the, the one in october and the one in november 
Very, very nice. How are things going as far as I know that you're close to the border, but any word on on kind of what things are looking at with people crossing over? Well, it's really interesting. So I actually was at the Peace Arch Park a few times earlier today seeing clients. The line's going north. I don't think I've seen such big lines over the last year and a half. It's packed with Americans. It's got to be at least an hour to an hour and a half line going into Canada. Coming south, there's no cars. So I think a lot of Canadians are still hesitant on coming to the U.S. until the full reopening on uh, November the 30th, next Tuesday. Right. Interesting that it's so busy coming north in that people in that lineup, in that scenario, they would still be providing the PCR test and that to come back into Canada. Oh, absolutely. So it was I didn't see one Canadian car, all American cars. So that means there are people living down here like myself who still, even after the 30th of November, still have to give the PCR test, the negative test to the Canadians in order to uh, enter Canada as a foreign resident. Uh, what are your what are you hearing then as far as also we saw the the bit of chaos with people getting fined the $5700 and being stopped at the border even after they had been told there were exemptions for essential short trips uh, have you heard from people as far as has that been clarified and people are being able to do that more Well I know it has been clarified uh through the news but I think there's a lot of Canadians who are hesitant to take advantage of that kind of emergency exemption, given what they heard what happened earlier this week. So it's got to be a chilling effect for a lot of people who maybe would have come down here to get gas this week uh, or to get groceries. And they're probably going to wait out, I think, until next Tuesday and not have to, you know, deal with possibly this, you know, $5,700 fine and a possible quarantine. And, you know, I agree with, you know, a lot of fellow Canadians, unless... The rules are very clear. There's really no point in coming over the border and being subject to that. Were you surprised at all with the kind of the what appeared to be a communication breakdown in that we heard from the federal minister in Canada, we heard from the provincial minister that, yes, it was all fine, these exemptions were in place, as long as you were being truthful that you lived in an area that was either actually impacted by the flooding or you were somewhere where gas stations were empty, you couldn't get gas, yes, it was okay to go across the border. Are you surprised at all that somehow that communication didn't get to the Canadians, the Canadian agents, when allowing people back home? Well, obviously, they don't watch the news. I'm not even living in Canada, and I saw the news. I saw the news last Sunday by both the federal and the provincial government. They made a, you know, huge announcement saying that, you know, emergency cross-border travel with no COVID tests is required. I thought, I'm shocked that all of these CBSA officers didn't see it. And when they were told by Canadians traveling back, all they have to do is do a, a simple Google search. So, you know, I hate to say it, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised. What's happened over the last year and a half, not only has there been a lack of coordination between the two countries, but apparently there's a lack of coordination between the provincial and the federal governments. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous how they've, they've, you know, this border is just, you know, it's going on and on and on, this closure. And even myself, I'm hesitant to come back into Canada as a Canadian until all of the restrictions are finally eliminated. Uh, which makes sense because you are in a different position as far as living in the U.S. It's not as though you're going to fall under after the 30th, like you said, the 72-hour rule. Well, exactly. So it's great for Canadians who want to come down here and go grocery shopping or 
or get some gas or pick up their packages that have been sitting in these mailbox places for almost two years. But for your average person living on the U.S. side of the border like myself, I'm still going to have to do a PCR test, even if I just come up there for a few hours and return. And so, you know, until the federal government, the Canadian federal government eliminates that, you're not going to see a real return to the, you know, hordes of people going back and forth like prior to the pandemic. How do you think businesses are feeling in Blaine and in Bellingham that once the 30th comes around, are they kind of gearing up for uh, an influx of Canadians who will do that, take those short trips of less than 72 hours? Oh, absolutely. I saw them gearing up on November the 8th when, when the American border reopened to vaccinated travelers. All the mailbox places, at least in Blaine, that were open maybe like one hour a day or maybe one hour a week, they're back to, you know, nine to five, six or seven days a week. They haven't seen the huge influx of Canadians coming down, but they've definitely ramped up. And a lot of people are really expecting almost a tidal wave of Canadians coming down on uh, on the 30th. And when Canadians do come down, and I don't, if you don't have this answer, not a problem, but I did have somebody write in asking, will Canadians, even when that PCR test requirement is waived come the 30th if you're going for a trip of 72 hours or less. Uh, One person is asking, and I don't know if it's different land versus air, if Canadians will still have to have the ArriveCan app to get back into Canada. I'm assuming they will because you still have to be fully vaccinated. So the Canadian traveler is going to have to show their full vaccination. So I'm assuming they're going to have to do the app. They just don't have to do the you know, upload their COVID test if it, if their trip's less than 72 hours. But, you know, these are all the, you know, the devils in the details that nobody's really, you know, said. So, you know, I'm sure on the 30th, a lot of people are going to be hesitant because they may hear the same stories that came out earlier this week where the CBSA officers aren't following, you know, their, the federal government's guidelines. Who knows? Yeah, it does sound like there will be people who are eager and will be the first ones and then a lot of other people waiting to see, kind of watching uh, maybe the first ones across the border and back being the guinea pigs to see how things uh, unfold. Well, absolutely. And so I think a lot of people won't want to be those guinea pigs, given what happened earlier this week. But, you know, I'm excited to see what happens. I know a lot of the businesses in Blaine, they've been patiently waiting for a year and a half, almost two years. So it's going to be definitely different seeing a lot of Canadian plates back in this car in this uh, town again. Uh, I would imagine, too, because we've talked about this several times uh, during the past year and a half or so. Just uh, the uh, the feeling and talking to other people as well who say it kind of feels like a bit like a ghost ghost town. Oh, absolutely. You know, you drive by the gas stations. You're lucky if you see a car at one of the gas stations, the mailbox places, all the lights are off. You know, if I see a, a Canadian-plated car in our parking lot in our office building, I'm shocked, right? That's how few Canadian cars you see down here. I think the ones that have been coming are going straight down to the southern states for, you know, snowbirders. So you, you just don't see the, the influx of Canadian shoppers coming down here. But I'm assuming that's going to start changing next week. All right. And Len, I wanted to ask you as well, I know you deal more and pre-pandemic, I know you dealt a lot with people who maybe had been truthful about marijuana use, who had been banned from the States, who had to then challenge that, get a waiver. We're hearing from the people that were fined the $5,700 coming back into Canada, that even though they shouldn't have been fined, it's not as though it's just going to be scrubbed. There's that dispute mechanism that they'll probably have to use to try and get the fine waived. 
saved. What is the process as far as if somebody is fined like that and now finds themselves in a position that they have to fight to get it taken away? Well, as you know, I'm not a Canadian immigration lawyer, but I watched that on the news and I was shocked that the Canadian government said, we made a mistake, but these travelers still have to appeal it. They should rescind that. The Canadian government has that data, the information on who was fined. They themselves should admit to their mistake and correct the problem. I was shocked when I saw the federal government say that, you know, these travelers have to themselves take the initiative. I think that's ridiculous. All right. Uh, Well, we'll see what happens because I know we've not heard the last of that at this point. Len, we will leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much, especially I know today's a day off for you. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. Thanks for being with us on this rather rainy Thursday afternoon. Talking now about how vaccines are rolling out for the younger age group. We know the 5 to 11-year-olds will soon be getting those shots. And while I'm sure it comes as a huge relief to a lot of parents that that age group has been approved to go ahead, also some, well, some hesitation, I'm sure, as well. With children, as you can imagine, even adults, for the most part, don't like needles. It's got to be difficult for kids as well. How do you actually... Make it so it's an okay experience. Well, Maureen McGrath is joining us now, host of the Sunday Night Health Show, to talk a bit more about this. Good to have you back on the show. Nice to be here, Jill. Thank you. This has got to be something that uh, parents deal with, uh, not uh, not outside of a pandemic, of course, but we're going to see thousands of parents dealing with this. What would be the first bit of advice you might give to parents who have kids who, not uh, a huge surprise, don't want to get a needle? Well, you know, first and foremost, it's a very common uh, condition, if you will, um, in children. About 63% of children have a fear of shots or needles and um, that um, that does decrease as children uh, get a little bit older but uh, especially in kind of the 5 to 11 year old and then about 11 to 17 it's about 43 percent so it's a bit current and it can contribute to vaccine hesitancy. And where do you think it comes from for for children in that I know they get vaccinated a lot as well as as infants and earlier on in life, but do they remember that? Or or where do you think this fear of needles comes from? Well, it's a little bit of the fear of the unknown. There's also fear of going to the doctor. There could be something wrong. Um, You know, some parents, surprisingly enough, may use a shot as a punishment. And so that's actually one of the treatments because exposure therapy is the actual treatment for this fear of needles and fear of injections. And, of course, in cartoons and in movies and television sets, you know, television shows, um, shots are not the most exciting thing. (laughs) It can be associated with pain. I would imagine, too, if kids have been exposed to watching the news at all since the pandemic started, I can't stand it every time if, if I look at a screen and see a, a needle actually going into an, a, to an arm. That can't be good for children to be seeing that every time they're looking at the TV either. No, nobody wants something poked into their arm, especially a sharp object. I know you talked before when we were talking about adults and getting over the the needle fears as an adult, things like the topical uh, creams that can freeze the arm. Do those work? Yes, they do work. But um, this is 
uh, just a common fear in kids, uh, typically. So being afraid of getting a shot or, or an injection. So just understanding that part. And also understanding that it's nothing to fear. Your child doesn't have an anxiety disorder um, unless they start obsessing about it and, and really obsessing about medical procedures in general as well. But this is just very common. And therefore, pharmacotherapy will not work for this. So a child does not need medication to treat this. But according to research and science, the best way to approach uh, needle fear, uh, needle injection fear or shot fear is through exposure therapy. And so it's basically through distraction. You never want to hold a child down um, and then give them the shot. They will be sure to develop a phobia after something like that. Um, But, you know, with babies um, who are not going to be vaccinated, but, you know, um, it's best for moms to perhaps be breastfeeding the child. So distraction techniques work like using bubbles or video perhaps will certainly grab a child's attention. Um, Also, you know, showing pictures of needles uh, being injected and then, um, you know, little short little videos of, you know, children doing well after having their shot. And then, of course, rewards work really well with children. And so maybe just a a candy or some small little uh, reward after the injection has been done. How much do you think do kids pick up on the fear and anxiety that parents might have about injections? Oh, so much. Um, Children are like sponges. And, And I often say that anxiety or fear is contagious. You know, if you see anxiety in a child, and, and again, this isn't an anxiety, this is just a basic fear, but if a parent has a fear of flying and they talk about it, then the child is likely going to have a fear of flying as well. Or they may go in the exact opposite direction, but, but for sure, this fear, um, you know, these ideas that people may have in their heads that maybe aren't even real um, can actually be passed on uh, through kids. They absorb it like sponges. And does it play in at all, do you think, that when you go to the dentist, I mean, a lot of kids will have been exposed to getting a a cavity filled or or going to the dentist and getting a freezing needle at the dentist. Is that a lot different or do we think of that differently than we do when it's a needle going into our arm? I have a fear of that, Jill. (laughs) That is not my favorite thing and I have been known to just just fill the cavity without that Novocaine, (laughs) please, Um, because it it is very different. Um, but the fear can be exactly the same for both, or it can be very different as well. The good thing is it's a very small needle. It's given intramuscularly, and it's, um, you know, it's... Oh, Maureen, your, your phone is cutting out there. Oh, sorry. Oh. It's pain. Can you hear me now? You were, yeah, we cut out right after you said it's, it's a very small needle. Yeah, it's a you know it. Uh, even, you know, I've given out the COVID-19 vaccinations and people will have accused me of not giving it to them <laughs> because it's so painless. And so that's something that parents can pass on to them. A very, very painless procedure. And often, you know, children who are very afraid to get it and then they'll realize, oh, my gosh, you know, that was nothing. And that might be beneficial for their siblings who are next in line to get the vaccination. Right. And I guess is that kind of the thing you make it like it's no big deal that, oh, we're, we're going to go get some groceries and oh, then we're going to get our, our COVID-19 vaccinations <laughs> and then we're going to go to a birthday party. Great approach. Absolutely. Yeah. It's no big deal whatsoever. Just part of part of the day. But something else I think parents can tap into for children is, you know, human nature, you know, especially when we're young and, you know, we, we basically want to help others. That is that is human nature. And so children can uh, be taught that they are contributing to ending the pandemic by doing their part and taking their shot. 
And so that will appeal to a lot of children. Uh, wonderful, and they're lovely, and, you know, they want to be kind. Um, you know, they're very heartfelt. And, and so appealing to that, that you're going to help to prevent other children from getting sick and also help your perhaps your grandma or your grandpa from getting sick, you know, that goes a long way. All right. That is good advice and something to keep in mind as parents gear up for those vaccines for the younger age group. Maureen, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Same deal. Take care.